This is Mormon Awakenings. You can reach me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everybody for the emails. They've been great to read, very interesting, and they've really made my day or days. Please keep them coming. Please keep the Facebook messages coming. I really appreciate it. I had a great opportunity this past week to sit down with Bill Real, founder of MormonDiscussionPodcast.com, and I want to just get right into it. So here is my conversation with Bill Real. This is Bill Real, and uh, today I'm with Jack Nanique. We're doing a Mormon Awakenings episode, and today we were kind of bouncing off the last time that the two of us talked, and we wanted to have a conversation today around uh, priesthood power and psychic ability, and and, and Jack, maybe maybe jump in and, and kind of give us... Uh, a little bit of a framing for this, and then uh, and then I sent you some things that I thought would be interesting to talk about, and and we can kind of jump into that. That that sounds good. Well, I I've, I've been thinking recently, um, and it's sort of a personal hobby of mine, just as an aside. But but the paranormal has has been interesting me lately, and it's always kind of interested me a little bit. Uh, and you know, as we think about, um priesthood power, you can kind of divide it, or or the priesthood in general, you can divide it into a couple buckets. One is the administrative side, you know, the authority to administer in the church, to be the bishop, to pass the sacrament, to, you know, make callings, you know, temple work, all that sort of stuff. So there's this whole administrative bucket. I think that part of priesthood power is fairly, or, or authority anyways, is fairly straightforward. But then there's this mystical side of priesthood power and of spiritual life. Uh, and we, we call that the, the power of God or, or the, the right to act in the name of God. And we have a hard time. Uh, we as a people, the Mormon people have a hard time articulating with great clarity what exactly that is. You know, are, are we, you know, are we standing in place of God and receiving God's revelation and and prophesying and healing or is God doing all that? And we're just sort of experiencing it along the way as witnesses or, you know, what exactly is going on? And um, from one perspective, it does look a lot like um, just good old fashioned spiritual healing, um, you know, psychic forecasting, precognition, some of the things that um, you can read about as you, if you dive into the paranormal and there are people that study these phenomenons, you know, th- this is sort of a closeted part of, uh, of modern Western culture, you know, the paranormal, the, the psychic table levitation and precognition and, and, and going to psychics to have, you know, what amounts to your fortune told. But, but there is a, a group of scientists nonetheless who are studying these phenomenons. And so I've been, you know, thinking about these, um, you know, these two aspects of life. One is, is this more mystical side of priesthood, more mystical and on a broader level, more mystical side of Mormon life. And then things that people experience across the world, across the globe, throughout history, which are, which we could categorize as mystical or paranormal or even psychic. Um, you know, and are these, are these things related? Um, 
you know, what, what's going on. So that's, that's what I thought would be interesting to discuss. Awesome. Today. And, and as you were saying that, a couple of thoughts that came up for me that I want to kind of give it before we kind of jump into the discussion is that when I look directly at Mormonism, Mormonism seems to kind of break itself up when it comes to priesthood power. It seems to break itself up into two areas, two arenas. And one of those arenas is tangible. And and what I mean by that is it's the supernatural God magic that goes on in the Old Testament, that goes on um, in the New Testament. And, And you could classify this as prophesying of a future event that comes to pass, of healing somebody of leprosy, of uh, parting the sea, or uh, having the finger of God come down and write commandments on tablets. And so take, you know, again, looking at Mormonism, Mormonism, the way it would define priesthood, power and authority. Again, there's those two things, power and authority. Power has the ability to do something that seems at least scripturally to be tangible. And on the other half of that, you have this untangible thing, which is authority and keys. And they're claims that we make in Mormonism, but they're invisible. There's no way to verify them. So if somebody parts the sea, you're like, that's the power of God. But if someone says, like, I preside over this meeting, like there's no way to verify that there's any real something going on on God's end that made that an actual fact. And, and I think that's an important dichotomy to split up as we kind of dive into this. But the first thing I wanted to ask you, Jack, as we do that, is the spirit of discernment, which I think is huge in Mormonism. And it's one of the things we we tell our leaders in the church, at least from the level of bishop on up, that you have the spirit of discernment. And I'm just curious maybe how you frame that in in the context of this topic and and then I'll share a few thoughts when you when you've kind of completed what you what you're thinking here. Well, that that's a really interesting question because if uh, on one level the spirit of discernment is is akin to telepathy, right? You can read someone else's mind, or it's akin to um, you know precognition, being able to to see the future, um, and um, so I think in fact, and I think people. Inside and outside the church have had experiences, both themselves and with other people, uh, where it seems as though the person you're talking to can kind of, can kind of intuit what you're thinking, just has a real gift of empathy. You know, this, this ability to, to sort of sense your, your vibrations, if you will, and get a vibe about you. And there, and we've all had that experience. I, I mean, I think we have. I, I have anyways, where, you're, you're talking with someone, you're having dinner with somebody or, or whatever, and they just seem to get you. We know people like that in our lives. And then there's times in our lives where we seem to just kind of get a sense of what the other person is thinking or feeling or maybe something that they're, that they're struggling with. And that, on one level, sounds a lot like this gift of discernment, right? And so the question for me is always, is there something fundamentally, um, Additive inside, uh, Mormonism and is there something tangible about our claims to the priesthood that enhance this or bestow this power on someone? And it's that part that I'm just not so sure about. You know, I'm just wondering if what we call discernment 
is just sort of a, uh, something that's, is an, an ability that's distributed throughout the population. Uh, and some are more naturally gifted in this way than others are. And, and, you know, through the priesthood, giving this gift to someone else, um, and, you know, like when you're made a bishop or, or something that, that it, that it doesn't, um, you know, that our claims about priesthood authority don't enhance this ability. Now, having said all that, I mean, there have been times when, um, when I personally have felt like I've, I've been able to discern things about, about other people. And, and what's hard about those sort of feelings is it's, is it's hard to go back and then prove with evidence that that was a real impression. Do you know what I mean? And so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to really prove with, you know, empirically or, or measure in any way or track whether, you know, any of these type of things are actually true. Likewise, I've been, you know, I've been with, um, although not, I can't think of many experiences. In fact, yeah, I mean, I guess I can't think of a couple experiences where some sort of ordained, uh, church leader with authority has been able to perceive things about me um or discern things about me or or say the right thing that that's happened that's happened um not, not a lot but it but it's definitely happened and so i feel like i've ex- been the recipient of that as well but again i'm i'm not so sure is you know is that something that's um you know is that something that we have a special right to as the lds or is that just something that is distributed throughout throughout the population in general and and that phenomenon exists because we're people like everybody else. Yeah, it's beautiful. Does yeah, that it does. Sense? That's beautiful. And and I have a lot of the same thoughts and and the way I would frame it is I think you're right. I think discernment as you're defining it and I would agree with the way you're defining it is is a human gift. It's not a Mormon gift. It's a human gift from God. It's and for me like and again, I, I don't throw this out as some kind of boastful thing, but but I st- was called to serve as a bishop at 29 years old. And as a 29-year-old kid, I'm still kind of early in life and and still kind of just flying. Which, by the way, is sort of a, a, mirac- a miracle in and right, of itself, call right? Bill 29-year-old right. kid being a bishop. Um, <laughs> no, not, I know, not I know. I mean, it's incredible. Me being funny. Um, <laughs> I, when I was called as a 29-year-old, and again, I'm, I'm young. I'm still in the first kind of phase of life. I'm still kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but I'm... I'm just edging into kind of what I really think is adulthood when, when you get into your thirties. And I remember being called as a bishop. And one of the things that I remember having happen is I suddenly had more concern for the people that I had stewardship over and, and Bishop feels like a serious calling within Mormonism. And I think it's fair to say that when, when we're given responsibility over humans, that perhaps God throughout the world, not just in Mormonism, adds an extra measure of sensitivity and concern. And, and for me, I'm okay saying that's discernment. Now the trouble is that Mormonism has framed discernment a certain way. And our leaders have told us that when bishops go into interviews, they have the spirit of discernment. They should, they, they will have an extra added measure to know which questions to ask. And to know, even if the person answers one way, to know if that person is being dishonest and answering the question incorrectly. And, and I struggle with that because I don't find that to be a valid claim. Like we could test that. And I'll give one example. Um, there is a ex-Mormon 
uh, named Mike Norton, who unfortunately, and I'm not a fan of what he's done, but he has been handing out temple recommends to anybody who wants one, and he's been going into the temple himself with a camera and videotaping the endowment session and other ceremonies within our temples and, and sharing those videos online. Now, he has sat before bishops and stake presidents. He has gone into temples with with worthy priesthood holders sitting at the front desk, um, examining those recommends, and not once has anybody, and he's done this hundreds of times, and when you count the recommends he's handed out to others, we're talking thousands of times. And so in that experiment, not once has anybody had the spirit of discernment to say, this recommend isn't valid even though it is, uh, Mike Norton's not worthy even though he says he is, uh, this isn't even the name the guy is going by. This isn't who he really claims to be. Like, that ability seems to not exist. And so I think in Mormonism, we have to retract or or step back, uh, distance ourselves away from some of the claims that we've made, and maybe just allow discernment to be a spiritual gift from God that involves having more concern and love and sensitivity to those that we're responsible for and those we're not responsible for and allow it to be a human gift, but to recognize that in Mormonism or in say another faith, say, uh, uh, someone is, is works their way up and, and engages Buddhism in a way that they become a Buddhist priest. Like, can we recognize like God has given them because of that stewardship, some extra gift of discernment in the way that we're defining it. Just as when someone's called as a Mormon Relief Society president or a Mormon bishop, that they also have an extra gift of discernment in, in terms of being concerned and caring for those they have stewardship over. And I would just want to leave it at that. Yeah, I, I could see, right. And we, we, we have definitely talked, um, as a people, we've made, you know, we want to be able to explain everything and have a, um, have a predictable roadmap for everything. And I think we err for sure in talking about this ability to, you know, feel out whoever is, is lying to you or, or whatever. And I remember as a kid, um, you know, it freaks out every teenager in the church, right? You, you, you've done something maybe a little on the fringes and you go in for your temple recommend and, oh, I, you know, you're not quite up to confessing cause you're, you know, 14, <laughs> you know, and, but you're freaked out that, that, you know, this, this guy has this glowing ability to, to, to discern your every thought. And we, we do characterize it that way. And that's, that's not anyone, that hasn't been anyone's experience. Right. Uh, for right. sure. And that's even happened at the, but, but one sure. thing, but one, th- yeah, I was, I was just gonna say one thought that came to mind though is, is we, we, I think as a people, uh, not only as LDS, but as, you know, Western, Westerners living in the, in the Western world, we just don't have much of a, um, culturally accepted nor well-defined, um, rigorous way to develop these gifts, you know, and, and for example, let's, let's assume that, you know, that this is a, a spiritual gift. It's distributed throughout the population. Some have it more than others, but maybe it's just a human, it being discernment or, this great sense of intuition or empathy or whatever it is, but, but we have no culture or, or no, no methodology to rigorously develop or to understand it or to, you know, there's no training. There's no, um, it's, it's just you're ordained something, 
some some office. You're given the gift of discernment in the case of a bishop. And then, okay, go discern. You know, well, what does that mean? Does it come through? You know, because there is in Eastern thought, for example, some very rigorous uh, theory, and maybe it's based in truth or maybe it's not, but there's a rigorous paradigm about how all this stuff happens. You know, there's chakras and there's the third eye and there's, you know, people talk about how they experience um, supernatural or paranormal um, information reception. And we don't have any kind of discussion and, and also what one should do to prepare oneself for that. And again, I'm not making any sort of statements about the validity of any of that stuff other than there's a rigorous paradigm. In our culture, there is no um, frank discussion or rigorous methodology about how one becomes more in tune with, um, you know, with, with these gifts other than read scriptures and and pray and serve. And I'm not, look, I'm not denigrating any of those things. I think those are all good, productive things. I just think they're woefully insufficient when it comes down to developing what I think, you know, my point, my, my view at this point is that these are kind of human spiritual gifts and talents that, that can be developed. And I don't think we have any sort of rigorous methodology on, on how we should go about developing those things. We just say, go discern. You know, and so is that, you know, if I, if I'm angry driving down the road or if I'm thinking about something and, you know, how do we know what's, what's from our own brain, what's from our own emotions and what's, you know, bona fide information outside of ourselves from someone else? We, we have no way of teaching or certainly no way of verifying. Right. And, and I just want to throw in two last thoughts here and I want to jump into the next question, but I, I want to at least acknowledge, like, we sometimes want to frame it that, oh, culturally we make the mistake of overreaching here. And I simply want to validate for those who are listening who, who have gone through some type of faith transition that, that, that at least, you know, we recognize that leaders have said this, uh, from the pulpit. I've even heard stories firsthand from missionaries who were in the room that when an apostle came to a missionary meeting out in the mission field, that sometimes this apostle or the 70 would stand by the door. And it's happened more than once in terms of me hearing this multiple times from multiple missionaries where an apostle or a 70 stands by the door and says, I have the spirit of discernment. And as each of you walk out of the room, I'm going to shake your hand and I'll know whether you're worthy or not. So if there's something we need to talk about, let me know. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and to me, that's abusive. Yeah. And that's, and that's using fear. That is yeah. abusive. And, and so I just want to at least acknowledge, like, it's not something we culturally made up. It is something that our leaders and our manuals and our training from the top down uh, gave us, um, and I think we just have to oh, yeah, sure. we just have to figure out a new way to define uh, discernment as a community, and and I think it's going to start happening going forward because we're in an information age, and anything that's testable, provable, or dismissible, um, it's going to begin to happen little by little. So we have to get to that point. Um, the Holy Ghost in Mormonism. Jack, we have this idea that all of us have the light of Christ. It helps us to know right from wrong. All of us have access to moments with the Holy Ghost. But Mormons are in some way God's special children because we have the gift of the Holy Ghost or the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. And I think I think you'll probably land somewhere in the same place that you did with the Spirit of Discernment. But I want to get maybe what your thoughts are on 
Mormonism's uh, cornered market on the Holy Ghost and what your thoughts are with that topic. Well, I, th- I think it's a mistake to, and, and it, let me back up. I mean, it's always a, um, a, a logical uh, puzzle for children. And I've spent most of my time in the church teaching children and young adults or young people. Um, it's always a, a logical puzzle for them when they're given the gift of the Holy Ghost because they say, well, you know, I, I didn't, I feel the Holy Ghost before this and now I'm getting this gift and now I have more of the Holy Ghost. That whole understanding between, you know, th- these distinctions we make between light of Christ and then getting more of the Holy Ghost upon baptism and confirmation that, that always puzzles a pretty good percentage of our, of our new members, be they eight year olds or converts or, or whomever. So that whole paradigm, I think is, is wanting and just doesn't really adequately explain the, the phenomenon. And I think we make a mistake of acting as though we have, th- you know, that we are especially, um, spiritually tuned because of of some, um, you know, magical ritual that we've gone through. I think that that's a mistake. Having said all that, I think it is a really nice ordinance and rite of passage when someone is baptized and given the gift of, gift of the Holy Ghost. It's a nice rite of, rite of passage because it explicitly points out, look, there's, there's a power beyond you that, that, that is going to help you in, in a whole bunch of different ways. And, you know, you, the, you have access to more than just what you think in your head. You can get, you can get inspiration and spiritual guidance and spiritual insight. And that part of the Holy Ghost is really beautiful. And, and the ritual in that sense, as it, as it calls attention to that, to that reality and that phenomenon, and I think it is a reality and it is a phenomenon, is really, is really beautiful. But I think we really err when we start saying, only we, the LDS, have this extra boost of, of the Holy Ghost. Only we can, you know, be guided. Because if you look at any kind of studies, again, if you look at, there are people who study the paranormal and things like synchronicity and precognition. You know, it, it's, it happens, it happens outside the church. I think just as much people who study spiritual healings for that matter, it happens outside the church just as much as it happens within. In fact, you know, maybe you can make an argument that, that there are many people outside the church who are more spiritually in tuned with, with the spiritual vibrations in, in our world, you know? And so I think we make a mistake when we start making those, those sort of, um, uh, we're, we're special, we're better than everyone else type of claims. Um, having, you know, but having said that, it's a really beautiful rite of passage and it's nice to point that out, that there is, that there is spiritual guidance and you can, you can access it. That's really lovely and beautiful and valid. Right. It, uh, it makes me think of two things. One is LDS author John Ogden. Uh, he wrote a book, um, When Mormons Doubt. And, and in that book, he plays off this idea of beauty, goodness, and truth. And he says, like, in the Mormon paradigm, we've taught ourselves as an institution and as a culture that the Holy Ghost is a tool to know truth. And and, and truth in Mormonism is mm. often tangible historical events and occurrences rather than intangible principles and feelings and 
and unverifiable thoughts. It's really a confirmation of of a historical event in some moment in time that validates that the restoration is real. And John makes the argument that that's yeah. useless. Like the Holy Ghost as a tool to know whether Joseph Smith saw Jesus in the grove, saw nothing in the grove, saw both heavenly beings in the grove is a useless tool. And and often not just in Mormonism but within religion we we overreach on what the spirit maybe can tell us. And he says, we ought to back off and focus more on beauty and goodness. And that if we do that, that the Holy ghost tends to do a pretty good job. Like this, this something within us deep inside our soul seems really good at telling us when something was right. Like when we go out and we do something for someone else and you're like, wow, that felt really good. Um, I, I think the Holy ghost is a useful tool, but it's useful for, yeah. testifying to us of beauty and goodness. The other thing is for me, the way I've had to kind of back off personally in discerning the difference between the, the Holy ghost, the light of Christ, the gift of the Holy ghost is when, when a Mormon eight year old gets hands laid on his head and he's given the gift of the Holy ghost. For me, the gift is that there's this moment in time where we, we, as an institution, as a culture, as a people, we let this, either this eight year old or this 57 year old know, we let them know like there, there is something extra in the world and we're making you aware of it. And, and as a religion, if we mm. make someone aware of the access they have, whether, and again, not just Mormon, like this gift is available to every human on the planet, every human on the planet can utilize the Holy Ghost just as well as, as a, as a Mormon high priest can. And recognizing that though, that what Mormonism does is it takes this person and makes them aware and it teaches them that they have access to it. And to me, that is a gift. And so for me, the gift of the Holy Ghost is an awareness that, oh my goodness, there is this something extra in this world. There's this extra piece of mystery that can help me to become more like my father in heaven. And the fact that they've made me aware of that, that for me is the gift of the Holy ghost. Well said. I mean, that, that, and that really is beautiful. I would echo your comments too, that, that there, that this is not exclusive to our people. It's a heretical statement, by the way. I mean, it's a, it's not our doctrine and it's a heretical belief, but I believe it. And I think you believe it too as you are disarticulated, which is there are people outside our community who have access to it as well and are maybe using it better than, than we are. I, that's heretical, but that, I think that's the fact. And I think it's demonstrative, demonstrably provable. Um, if you, if you spend any time looking into these things, so that may upset people. It certainly would, would upset our, our hierarchy who, who feel like there's this, you need to really qualify for it. And, you know, one of the, one of the big dangers I think that, that has, or one of the dangerous ideas that has crept into our culture is this idea that you have to somehow be worthy to receive love and guidance from beyond. And I just think it's a, first of all, the, the times where I've been, you know, the least worthy and the least deserving, it seems like those are the most spiritual times for me. So, so this is a dangerous idea. And I remember this being taught in a gospel doctrine class and I, I took a little bit of issue with it 
Um, and I'm not controversial at church. I'm pretty quiet. I don't say much, actually. I just kind of sit there and I'm pretty quiet. But I took issue with this. And, and there was pushback from, from a number of folks who called me Catholic or, you know, called me, you know, it was some sort of, um, you know, minimizing of my view. But, but I really think that that's a dangerous idea because it, it makes people feel as though we, they have to do all these things and check all these boxes before they can see themselves as a being of light, as a child of God, as deserving of direction and instruction. And, and I think we, I think that's coming all the time. Um, so, so I, you know, I wanted to throw that out there too. One idea that you, one, one thought that I had as well is as you were talking about the Holy Ghost as a testifier of truth, we have gone b- bananas with that idea. And, and it's always to one end, which is, um, the Holy Ghost is going to tell you that the Book of Mormon's true and you should be a, you know, a, you know, traditional member of the church. That, that's basically what we're constantly browbeating people with. And, and in that sense, and I think you made this distinction, which I agree. I think in that sense, it, it's, that's not the Holy Ghost job. Um, but I think the, the other, distinction or nuance that you made, which is a really good one, which is it does tell you, you know, this path, is this path uh, a path that's right for you? Or is this particular conduct helping you or is it hurting you? You know, I remember as a, as a teenager, you know, feeling, feeling guided to, to not do certain things or to do certain things that I either wasn't or was doing, you know, avoid these you know, really dangerous behaviors. <laughs> and you can imagine all the type of behaviors that teenagers will be experimenting with. You know, you, you, you ought to not, you ought to be careful about those things, even though, you know, you're maybe you're messing around with a few things. You, th- those things are dangerous. Be careful. And so from, so my personal experiences as a, as a young person was, were more, this is the path to walk. These are some things that are dangerous. For you, these other things maybe are not such a big deal. And, and it's a, you know, in that sense, a customizable, uh, or a customized guidance along a path that was right for me. Well, in that sense, it really is testifying of the truth. Um, but again, that allows a certain amount of nuance, um, and, and personalization of it all that I think we're loath as a people to acknowledge or to accept. We're just afraid of that kind of, um, nuance. You know, we don't like the, the, a spectrum or a range of possibility. We want, you know, things to be very black and white. Yeah. And, and the last thing I would only add, because you mentioned like a, an agreement that we've overreached on this. And, and I think we're going to kind of come down this same way on almost every one of these topics we talk about, but it's interesting kind of the framing that we're each giving these. Um, Mormonism is, and I don't mean this as an admonition, but it's just, it's what I feel in this moment. Mormonism is so concerned with self-perpetuation and with boundary maintenance and with protecting the narrative that it feels as one who's grown into what Richard Rohr calls the second half of life. As I've, as I've woken up to that and as I've opened myself up to looking around the world for truth and for wisdom. What, what I've discovered, and I don't mean any offense to Mormonism, this has nothing to do with the truth of Mormonism, 
but I find that there's very little wisdom in the correlated Mormonism. There's very little wisdom in the three-hour block. There's very little said that that I have these light bulb moments and these these spiritual aches and pains of growth from hearing and learning and practicing something. And and I simply offer that Mormonism likes to say it has a monopoly on this greater truth. But by saying that and protecting that, I think it's actually done the opposite, which is it's closed itself off to, to the idea that Joseph Smith taught, which was that Mormonism is truth. And wherever it is, in all the corners of the earth, we'll, we'll go get it, we'll grab it, we'll wrap our arms around it, and we'll bring it in. And Mormonism has done the opposite of that, where it says, look, the truth is here, we have to protect it, we have to make sure it's not, it's not corrupted. And so we've closed ourselves off to the wisdom of the world, and we've labeled the world bad, and we've labeled us good. And in doing so, we're not open-minded to the good in the wisdom that's outside of our tribe. And I think it's in large ways stagnated our growth and caused us in some ways, I don't want to say a dead tree, but a tree that, that looks a little weaker and, and isn't having the growth it could have. And maybe even to a severe uh, kind of way, I, I just feel like we've closed ourselves off to so much truth that the Holy Ghost could help us bring into our tribe, but we're too protective of our boundaries to even open our eyes to that. It it feels that way after some of the talks from this past general conference, doesn't it? Um, and I think uh, I think and, and a lot for me, of our Jack, not just this past one, not not just this past one. Like yeah. I, other than maybe Elder Uchtdorf every other year or so, like I just feel like there's nothing real new here. There's nothing pushing me to stretch myself and grow. And and when I listen to people like Richard Rohr or Rob Bell or the Liturgist podcast or, or Krista Tippett interviewing Martin Sheen or interviewing David Hartman, who's a Jewish rabbi, like I hear these guys talk and these women talk and I go, wow, like that's big. And then I look yeah. at our tribe and I'm like, all we're doing is protecting ourselves. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, it, it, you know, again, your point about it's not just this past general conference is well taken. And, and I think people would, I think there's a, a big swath of people who agree with your sentiment and most of the experiences that we've had. Um, well, not, not that we've had, but I think a lot of people have had many experiences that have gone back many, many years at that mirror yours, which is boy, I go and it's kind of the same old stuff. And, uh, it gets tedious. And, you know, the, the answer that we often give for that is, well, you know, you've, you got to master the, you know, we need to keep hearing the same message because we haven't mastered it. And I, I think that that, I think that that applied, that kind of logic applies maybe at certain times of life when you're doing things that are destructive to yourself or others. And okay, you got to keep working at some things, but, but there certainly is a point in life when you want to be fed and you don't feel like you're being fed at church. Um, and you know, when I, and I struggle with this for sure. And I think, I think any mature LDS person who, who's not just so busy that they can't think, but anyone who has time at church to think, and many of us, by the way, don't have time to think at church. We're, we're doing so many other things. We're not thinking. And I think, so that's fine. But, but if you do have time to sit and think, (laughs) be a little more contemplative at church, you, you, I think many mature people come to this inevitable conclusion, which is where is the substance here? I, I would like something to 
to help me, and it, it does seem to be an intractable problem. You know, you mentioned Richard Rohr. I think he would explain it by saying the point of the church is first half of life, period. I don't know if he goes quite that far, and he was he's talking about the Catholic Church specifically, but the point of any inst- religious institution is first half of life, boundary drawing, um, teaching black and white, teaching fundamentals, and um, and I think our church does as good of a job, maybe even a better job than most at that part. And so I, I do think the church does a nice job, uh, you know, giving giving something that that our people can push against. It's black and white. It's it's expectations are clear. They're high, and I think it makes people think hard about these things at an early age. And I think those first half of life activities are are good and, and productive, but I, boy, we really need something for, um, and, and if anybody could or should be doing it, it should be the LDS church, which, which makes these great broad claims about access to truth, but we really got to do something better for the more mature member. And, and in that regard, it's just, we are woefully, uh, d- deficient. Um, I just don't think, you know, for example, in my ward, the high priests, the high priests, and, and this will sound prideful, but the high priests are being asked to do the duty of God pamphlet, which is something designed for teenagers to teach them the basics of the gospel and to get some good habits and do some service and, 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 you know, under, you know, start to develop habits like scripture reading and prayer and, you know, so the high priests are asked to do the duty of God, duty to God pamphlet. Not in conjunction as a tutor to to some boy or as a mentor, but just you know to do it because we need to learn the and and I understand the spirit of it. The spirit of, of it is well, let's get back to fundamentals. You can never work too hard at the fundamentals, and, and okay, that's fine. But it is it's it's unsatisfying to people in general who have been in the church for decades, served in all the callings, been missionaries, read everything. Every standard work many, many, many times, you know, a lot of these people that are asked to do this have, have read all the, the standards, the fundamentals umpteen times. It's, it's unsatisfying <laughs> to then go back and do the duty of God. And I think that that's indicative of this dearth of more, um, um, I, I don't want to say advanced because that's, that's kind of a prideful term, but but more mature, complicated, rigorous, you know, whatever it is, something a little more satisfying to, to real seekers. And, and it just is, I, I think we've, if any church should evolve to the next stage in this, in this department, ours should with given our truth claims is yeah. my view. I, uh, yeah, you're right. And, and I want to, I want to hit on two little things and I want to kind of jump forward, but Richard Rohr, uh, you're right. He does say that institutions, their main job is their, their main job, Jack, is this first half of life. And, and I made notes of this because I want to do an episode on this at some point. So I just had to go back into my notes on my phone, but he lists five things that, that churches will almost always do. And it's all first of, uh, first half of life stuff, self-preservation, self-perpetuation, that, that we know. They're, yep. they're going to protect themselves as entities and they want to see themselves last long into the future. They, they're concerned with identity. They're concerned with boundaries. 
They're concerned with self-maintenance and they're concerned with self-congratulations. And we see each of those really deeply in Mormonism, for instance. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that one we just saw recently, right? Like the church donates money, $10 million to homeless shelters in Salt Lake City, which is beautiful. Like I literally applaud My personal pet peeve is the self-congratulations. We're so self-congratulatory. Right. We always want to tell the world like, hey, look at us. We did something good. And sometimes you just have to let it speak for itself. Um, The other thing I wanted to, to say is you hit on it too, is that if any church... Like, we don't claim to be a living church. We claim to be the only true and living church. And to be a living church, you have to give something new and vibrant. And if you're not doing that, if you're saying, look, we just have to emphasize the basics again, like, that's not living. Living is stretching us. It's it's getting us to expand our mind and our thought. And you're right. Like, Mormonism just isn't isn't living in that way. And man, do I wish it did. Um, the, the next thing is priesthood blessings. Uh, we claim Jack that, that Mormons have this extra power where two young 19 year olds, for instance, on their mission can go out and lay hands on a sick person's head and give a blessing. And that person by the nature of our theology has a better chance at living one, than if they didn't get a blessing. And two, if anybody else in the world had given that blessing, Mormon priesthood has an added benefit. And, and I'm just going back to you because I, I recognize again, there's this dichotomy. Part of priesthood is that we lead, we preside, we oversee ordinances. But the other side of that is there's some extra power that allows us to have the gifts of the spirit in a way that separates us from the rest of the world. And I wondered what your thoughts were there. Well, this, this is an interesting, uh, topic, um, because of my personal experience. I've had experiences, um, I, let me back up. I've never really thought of myself as sort of this spiritual, um, spiritually tuned person or someone who, you know, has one foot in the spiritual world and one foot in the real world. I've never kind of been this sort of mystical, person on my mission, I, I never felt like I got guidance much anywhere. I was always willing to defer to my companion, but I, but I just didn't seem to be this sort of clairvoyant, you know, spiritual person in spite of my efforts. But when it came to giving blessings, I really felt, um, or, or, or setting people apart, um, for callings, I really have felt, uh, very guided and it's almost been like another worldly experience for me. And, you know, I remember blessing people, um, on my mission during college, uh, the, you know, people that I home teach, <clears throat> you know, k- kids before they go to school. And I just really feel guided and have had some really, um, unusual experiences. One experience in particular that I'll share is there's this woman that I home teach who, um, she's a little dramatic, so maybe that'll, minimize the effect of this story, but, but she called me and said that she had six months to live. They found a spot on her lung. It was cancerous and she was done. And, and, um, you know, could I come give her a blessing? And so I did, I went over there and I gave her this blessing and I basically said, you're going to be absolutely fine and no, no problems. (laughs) And I, as I was giving it, I thought, this is crazy. You know, why, why am I saying these things? But I really felt as I all would, 
as I often do when I give blessings, I really felt guided. I felt this power come through me. Um, it turned out that, you know, she, she went the next time there was no spot on her lung. You know, again, I don't know if she was being dramatic, if she was lying to me. I don't know if there really ever was a spot in her lung. All I know is what she reported to me and this confidence that I had when I was blessing her that there really was nothing wrong with her. There's, there was another guy who is not even LDS. He's just this friend of mine who got Bell's palsy. And I said to him, look, I'm, I'd be happy to give you a blessing if you're into that. You know, you're, he's, he's Christian, but he's not of our faith. I said, if you're into that, you may think that's weird, but I'd love to do that if you, if you'd like. Cause I, I feel like that's really been a spiritual experience that I've had historically. He said, yes. So I gave him this blessing. And as I was giving the blessing, I kept, and I kept feeling, look, you're, this is going to be resolved, but this is going to take a while. It's going to take, take some time and just do what your doctors tell you to do. And eventually I kept feeling, you know, hearing this word eventually, eventually it's going to work out and you'll be fine. Well, it's been about a year. Usually these Bell's, Bell's palsy, palsy cases resolve themselves and sometimes in a matter of weeks, sometimes in months. It's unusual if it goes past six months to ever resolve itself. Usually if it goes past six months, it's kind of a permanent condition, at least according to what he's told me, you know. But his has gone on for about a year and it's gotten slowly better to now at a year, he's kind of back to normal. And that's, that's an unusual case statistically according, according to him. So I've had these experiences of blessing people, of using, of having this spiritual guidance. And, and I've struggled with the, you know, with this notion, you know, is this because of any kind of worthiness? Is this because I've been given the priesthood or is it just kind of a, a gift, a spiritual gift that, that other people have? And, and there's, there's a massive history that goes back millennium about spiritual healings in as much as they're possible about people calling on powers beyond themselves to, to assist others in, in healing sicknesses in healing, you know, mental disturbances, whatever it is. And now I kind of feel like, well, it's, I'm not so sure if it's, if it's distinctly priesthood other than, in a symbolic way, but I do believe strongly in this power to heal. I don't know the extents of it. I don't know the limits of it. You know, I mean, I know in some of your podcasts, you've said where, you know, where, where is there evidence of someone who's regrown a limb or, you know, or <laughs> the broken leg is fixed. We don't see that sort of stuff, but at the same time, I, I really have felt guided um, when I've, when I've, and had good outcomes when I've gone to, been asked to bless other people to heal specifically to, to heal the sick. So that's kind of where I am. I, you know, I guess I'm kind of, uh, regarding healing as a, it, it's analogous to how I thought about the Holy ghost or other things is I think it's a more universal gift, um, that, that can be cultivated, that can be, um, exercised. Some people have more talent in this areas than others. And, you know, talent is just ability. Some people have a more natural, ability than, than others. And maybe, maybe I have something like that as, you know, as boastful as that may sound, but I may have that spiritual gift. Um, whereas I don't have other spiritual gifts. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I am on it. I want to reiterate what you, what you said, and I want to, I want to speak to what you said and, and in some ways validate it. Like you said, healings, healings are real. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not unique to Mormonism. They're, they occur all over the world. Like there are, there are Catholic and Hindu and Muslim and Buddhist people. There are tribes in the middle of, of the African forest that are performing healing rituals and they have stories just like we have stories of people being healed and their stories aren't any less real or valid than our stories. It's not like we can just go like, yeah, Mormon healings are real, but those other people, those things are just, you know, embellished, made up stories. Um, and, and then kind of a third thing is to recognize that maybe part of a priesthood blessing, maybe not entirely, but part of a priesthood blessing or any other healing ritual that goes on in the world. And I'll take this guy you talked about with palsy, with Bell's mm. palsy. You, when you laid hands on his head, God may have already had the intention of, of this going away. Like this was just going to go away. This is, he's one of the 12% who after six months, it still gets better and goes away. And your job, the blessing you gave him, was to be aware. Again, I go back to the same kind of idea that that I was hitting on with the Holy Ghost, the gift of it. That yeah. that sometimes our bless our job and a blessing is just to make someone aware that that they're loved by God and that this is going to get better or that they're going to have the support that they need. And yeah. and I'm not I'm not diminishing that there are times where priesthood leaders, uh priesthood holders have laid hands on someone's head and said, you know, you're going to be healed. And then, you know, in some marvelous fashion, a healing takes place. And I've been part of those. I mean, I, people like to say I'm uber critical and, and I simply want to say like, I've had spiritual experiences and I've been part of priesthood blessings that for me bordered on supernatural, Mm, um, bordered on something beyond the, the, the explainable happening and and i want to like validate that that happens but I, but it's not unique to mormonism and it's not it's not more prevalent in mormonism like i i yes. see it being equal everywhere i think and, that's right for people who are who are looking for those sort of things for sure yes right and and a good example uh again mike norton i just listened to the mormon stories podcast and, and again the interview he did does he says like after he's pretty much out and disconnected from Mormonism, he gets diagnosed with Parkinson's. He's on medicine. He's got the, he's got tremors. He's can't keep his balance. And he says this prayer as a non-believing Mormon. If God will show him some kind of sign that Mormonism isn't true, for instance, and, mm. and he is suddenly healed of his Parkinson's and I'm not in any way giving any validity to like the church isn't true because Mike Norton is healed of Parkinson's, but to recognize that people in this world get the exact opposite answers that, that you and I get at times in our life and that a contradiction doesn't make one person right or one person wrong. It's just the human experience that, that healings occur and they occur to all segments of God's children, including those who are even critical or fighting against Mormonism. I think that's right. And and I love, I always love stories, just as an aside, where someone is praying to know if Mormonism's true or praying to know if Mormonism's not true, because it, it's such a monolithic question that in one sense, you simply can't get an answer to, you know, I mean, you know, 
when you say is Mormonism true, you know, was polygamy true? No. Should we not drink? I think that part you should. You know, is, is the basic moral code, um, productive and healthy? Yes. Do we take it too far? We do. You know, so it, it, in my view, it's just, it's a question that cannot be answered. Um, and so when, whenever I hear stories like, um, you know, is Mormonism true or more Mormonism not true? I think the answer is always disabusing ourselves. The real answer is always disabusing ourselves of this fundamental question. It, you know, it just isn't, that's the wrong question. And so when, you know, I remember I heard Mike Norton's story too about his Parkinson and I, and I just kept thinking clearly the way he was thinking about, uh, life as, as all of us, by the way, it, it, at any given snapshot in time, the way he was thinking about life and, and, and religion and church was not, what needed to be adjusted. And so in that sense, uh, you know, I've, I view that whole experience as just an incremental guidance to take the next step in, in life. Uh, so, but that's, but that's, you know, that's just an aside, <laughs> but, you know, back to the more fundamental question, which is, you know, these healings um, and, and do they, is it something that we, are, you know, are we calling down the power of God and, and affecting it? Or are we serving more as clairvoyants who are just sort of channeling a message to the person about the, the situation that they're in? I think that that's a very interesting question. And my own view is it's the latter. You know, people get sick, things happen, and they have to be able to cope with it. And I think none of the, none of this is, uh, none of these things are coincidences. I mean, I think that, that everything that's happening in our life is to some greater aim, some greater end of, you know, our advancement in some way. And so I think we really are serving more as clairvoyance, for lack of a better expression, to, com- to communicate something. And, and I also think that the priesthood helps, you know, the, the priesthood, this idea of priesthood helps just kind of occupy our materialistic or our egotistical mind and help us believe, believe that something can happen that's supernatural. You know, we, cause if we don't believe, then, then nothing happens. You know, and it's interesting that in, in the New Testament, Christ is always admonishing people to believe. You know, you gotta believe, you gotta have faith. He rarely says faith in what? Or to believe in what? That's always implied. And we all think we know what that implication, what is implied, what that implication is, but it's never explicitly stated. And so I think this notion of just having something that's, that, that's more concrete that our e- egotistical, you know, our, our worldly minds can just be occupied with while the, while the supernatural happens. I think that's as much, uh, a, a purpose of quote unquote the priesthood as anything else. Cause I, you know, these supernatural things, if you've experienced them, you know, they're real. And, and you also know it's sort of capricious, but, but as you mentioned too, it happens, it's been happening since the dawn of time everywhere in the world, inside and outside the church. And, you know, what is really happening is a very interesting question. Yeah. And, and as you're saying all that, I'm, I'm thinking about priesthood in, the lip service that we give it within the church of it being this extra added gift to heal people. And, and I don't mean this as an offense to, to Mormonism or its leaders, but I, I know folks who work, for instance, at the Salt Lake um, City Children's Hospital. 
And rarely do general authorities go there just to go there and to, you know, give kids blessings. Mm. And it, it seems like, right, if it's almost like subconsciously, I don't think it's conscious, but subconsciously as a culture, we recognize like, yeah, it doesn't quite work the way we talk about it. Because if it did, every, every single priesthood holder in Salt Lake City should go into the children's hospital once a week and just bless these kids so the hospital's empty. Like yeah, it just go heal them, right? Go heal them all, <laughs> right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying that blessings don't happen in the hospital, but but I think it was I don't know who it was that said it, but said that when we go in, to, when when members of the priesthood go in to give blessings, they're not always walking out with somebody, right? They're yeah. not always. It's not like the the. It's not like the New Testament or the Book of Mormon, where Jesus comes along and just heals hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and they're all just magically healed. There yeah. seems to be a subconscious recognition in Mormonism that this doesn't quite work as well as we like to talk about it. And we're not really spending our time and energy performing that function because we sense subconsciously that it really doesn't work quite as well as we'd like to think. And because and, even if yeah. you gave a hundred blessings and 20 kids with cancer got healed out of those hundred, like there's no reason why we shouldn't be at the hospital 24/7 blessing kids as they come in. Right. Right, just to get a, you know, if you're if you're if you get a better than chance statistically significant result, that's better than even chance. Even 5%, then, right? Yeah, even you, 2%. You should, you should do it because for those right. Yeah, I I think the the the, the mechanics of it are certainly a mystery and the um you know, and so, you know, what exactly is happening? Are they, are they calling down, you know, the, the power of God? Are, are they wielding, you know, the power of God themselves to, to do things kind of independently? It gets very fuzzy and illogical and contradictory when we start to, to think about those mechanics, you know, and, yeah. and it starts to and, make and no would, sense. And I know yeah, radio I free, venture, it drives yes. radio free memory, it drives radio free Mormon, sorry to, to barge in, but it, it call, it You're drives right. radio free Mormon crazy. I mean, he, he can barely get through, a, you know, a, an episode without decrying this, you know, this lack of miracles. And I, I think he's kind of backing up against some of these mechanics that we don't understand. Right. Yeah. He, he certainly senses that what, again, I think it's probably unconscious. But that yeah. the leadership of the church senses that there aren't any um, verifiable supernatural miracles happening, and so they sense they have to frame miracles in a different way. And, and I think this is testable. I think we could we could take uh, seven atheists, seven Mormon priesthood holders, and seven Buddhist priests, and we could send them down the cancer wings of a hospital and have each one bless different people. And the, the atheist can just kind of cross their fingers and, and say, uh, say, I wish you well. And the Mormons can do their, their, you know, their Mormon priesthood blessing and the Buddhist priest can do their ritual. And, and my guess is that the results between the three groups would be extremely similar. And I'm even open to a one in, th- uh, a two in three chance that the, the Mormon priesthood is less successful than one of the other two groups that statistically it pretty much is a wash and, and not that there aren't healings happening, but that they're not conducive to a priesthood blessing. They're not, uh, there's no causation or relationship between Mormon priesthood 
and the statistical chance of being healed from something. Um, yeah, I, I that, wanted to ask you, oh, go ahead. Well, there's, there's a guy, uh, who's sort of a, a weird new agey slash physicist. So he's a new agey guy. And then he's also like a nuclear physicist, uh, named Tom Campbell, who's written this big, long, really tedious book called my big toe. And toe is a, an acronym for theory of everything, but he teaches, you know, this is a guy who worked for NASA. He teaches people how to do spiritual healings. And he has this big elaborate theory about, um, how, how effective or what the odds of success are given the state of how firmly entrenched a particular disease is. And it's all this big probabilistic theory. And I, I, who knows if he's right or wrong, but he's thought fairly rigorously about these mechanics. And, and he has a, you know, a big view about future events and how much consciousness can affect those events. And then what the, what the limits are as well. And again, I don't, I'm not saying that he's right, but it, but we don't have anything even remotely. Um, I mean, we're like kindergartners in terms of our discussion about methodology, the mechanics, you know, and even our discussion about what exactly is happening when you're giving a priesthood blessing. Are you, are you really serving more as a clairvoyant, just sort of helping the person understand what is happening, given plans that are out of your hands, or are you, you know, like Zeus, <laughs> controlling, you know, Titanic and elemental forces and changing things? And you know, and I've have not thought about this very explicitly either. It's not like I'm, you know, th- thinking about it. But as I, but as I even utter these words, it makes me think. Well, we're clearly b- being more clairvoyant than we are you know, harnessing and, and using the power of God, but, or the power of consciousness or the power of the universe or whatever it is. But we don't even, we don't even talk about those mechanics. Forget about even cult, you know, what it takes to cultivate them or to get better at them. All we say is be worthy and, and have faith. And look, it's important to be worthy and have faith, but I'm not sh- so sure it's important in the ways that we think it is. Right. Hmm. Mm, beautiful. Um, the first three questions that we've just hashed out have to do with how these spiritual gifts work inside Mormonism and in the world. And now I want to take these last three questions, Jack, and begin to reflect maybe on what the repercussions of that are for Mormonism. And, and so this next one, um, as we've done in this discussion, and as we do in Mormonism, like we recognize like, oh my goodness, the way these things work in tangible ways – is a lot messier than what we we thought of the way we we frame it within our institutional faith. But the other side of it is we always point back to keys and authority. But those are those are intangible, invisible, unverifiable. And and yet it seems like in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Book of Mormon, uh religious leaders had access to supernatural god magic like and i don't say that as a mocking way it's the only way i can separate it from from what we would call like a coincidental kind of miracle like something that could be explained but man thank goodness it still happened and and it was you know the chances were low that it could happen the chances of parting a sea are not just slight to i mean they're nil they're just it's not going to happen the chances of Striking, pointing at a critic and saying a prayer to God and that critic suddenly becoming a mute is, is not, it's absurd. 
And, and yet we see those kinds of miracles happening throughout Scripture. And when I look at this dispensation, and we like to separate in Mormonism things that way, uh, in this dispensation, I don't see any supernatural God magic. And I realize looking back, like I don't take the Old Testament uh, literally. Uh, I'm willing to wrestle with the literalness of the New Testament, and I don't see the Book of Mormon necessarily as a literal story of literal people performing literal actions. And so I'm not bound to it, but as, but Mormonism certainly has bound itself to seeing itself as an outgrowth of, of those people and those experiences. It takes them very literally, uh, at least to a large extent. I know there's some room we could argue for Adam and Eve, for instance, or the Garden of Eden, like we could argue that. But generally speaking, Moses was a real man who parted a sea. Noah was a real man who built a ship. Um, uh, Mahanri Moriankamer was a real man who who got on with other people on seven barges, and God touched these stones, and they lit up. And and the the two thousand stripling warriors were a real teenage army that fought against a, a larger, more experienced army without anybody dying. And when I look at those, and I know I'm kind of going on and on, when I look at those experiences, I see tons of supernatural God magic happening. And when I look at President Monson, Elder Uchtdorf, Elder Eyring, and the other 12, I don't see that at all. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, not necessarily for you, because I think you stand probably in relatively the same space I do, but what do you see as the repercussions for Mormonism as we go another 100, 300, 500 years into the future and the information age is not going away and all of us are going to have to come to grips with this more and more that this dispensation isn't isn't anything like what happened in in those dispensations well i mean that that's that's a great that's a great question and it it raises so many issues um you know the the first question that comes to mind is, you know, did, did, were any of these events that, that you referred to as God magic, were they, were they real events or were they symbolic events as part of a bigger allegorical set of stories? You know, and I think that's, I think that that's a pretty fundamental question that, that one needs to grapple with before we even, you know, handle some of the other issues. And and I think that that's you know it's this whole literalism versus figurative walk that we walk along, and um, you know and I'm kind of going through my mind even as I'm talking, trying to think what my position is on many of these, uh, you know, historical magical you know God magical supernatural things, um, and my own view at this stage is that m- most of it is 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 there to teach figurative lessons. You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Some things I think are clearly figurative and symbolic and some things that, that have historically happened, I think, are absolutely just stories and allegorical. But but no matter how I come out on that question, I'm quite certain that it's, that the that the point of any of these things been written written down is the figurative lessons. That, you know, that the, the, these are all figurative um the, the takeaways for us are largely figurative and symbolic, and the power is in, is in how we apply them personally to to our circumstances. 
Do you know? And so whether, whether or not Mahan Rai Moriankumar lit the stones up or not, the lesson for me is, is a figurative one. I can figuratively ask to have my figurative stones figuratively lit, lit up. I can be guided or however you want to interpret that. And so I don't think we talk about, I, I talk about that a lot on my podcast, but I don't think as a people we talk about that issue anywhere near, um, nearly enough. I mean, we all, we always are drawing conclusions at the end of any talk or lesson or something about, well, let's apply this to our own life, you know, likening the scriptures unto us. And, and that's our way of doing it. We're going to apply it to our own lives, but it still leaves people empty, which is, I think the point that you're driving at. It leaves people feeling a little bit empty and unsatisfied that there aren't more supernatural miracles going on. You know, we don't, you know, our apostles, unlike the apostles of Jesus, aren't cruising through the streets, touching people, telling people to pick up their bed and walk again. You know, we're not seeing um, angels flying around and like Elijah, we don't see the armies of heaven fighting our battles for us. And, you know, the, there's been no Red Sea parting. And all we see is sort of a bunch of coincidences which RFM, you know, gripes about <laughs> a lot. And he's making a good point. I think you're making a similar point, which is where, where's can, the Can where's I add to you, Jack? Just, I'm going to yeah. interrupt, interrupt you for just, just a second. Absolutely. Like, like even to the extent that President Monson has the inability to strike the Tanners or Ed Decker or Mike Norton a mute, right? Like even something as small as striking a critic with some ailment that he's unable to continue his criticism or her criticism is, is absurd in this dispensation. It is an absurd, like it, like it's absurd to even think that that may happen, that that's an absurdity. Right. Like it's, it feels like an impossibility. It's never been, it's never occurred. Right. All we have are stories of like Joseph Smith threatening to do it. We we don't actually have any evidence that, that, a leader of the church had the ability to strike a critic unable to criticize, which seems like the simplest of supernatural God magic. And it does occur throughout scriptural canon. Yeah, right. That's right. And so we, we are left fundamentally with this, with this empty, we're dissatisfied because we don't, um, we never, we don't see even the simplest of miracles, Right. Beyond sort of impressions, you know, very things that even if we tell other people they're coincidental and, you know, we, we have personal things, but we don't see these dramatic. And, and I, I agree. We don't see those sort of things. And, and I think I'm not sure. I haven't thought about this that thoroughly, but as I'm speaking, I think it goes back to this fundamental position and lack of explicit discussion about whether, whether the, scriptures are primarily allegorical or are they literal? And, and in my view is without making a statement either way, cause it just, it just upsets people when you take too strong of a position either way. My position is no matter what your position is on that question, the lessons are always figurative for you. They're always the, the best that any of our stories can do is give us figurative takeaways and we, we, and we, what I do think we ought to do is talk more explicitly about that and just stop telling people to expect, um, expect things that, that just aren't going to happen, that that's really not the point, even if they did happen historically. The point is to, 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 
you know, have figurative lessons for your own spiritual internal, internal lives. Now that people may say, oh, well, you're, 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 you're cutting it off. You're limiting it. You, you know, you're, that belief limits the power of God or the priesthood or whatever. And I, I, I don't, maybe it does. I don't know, but, but it seems, it seems without tack wrestling with this idea of literal versus symbolic, literal versus figurative, if we don't wrestle more with that idea as a people, we are, we are going to constantly have our expectations dashed and be looking for something that that will never happen and then we're going to miss all the we're going to miss all the real personal growth spiritual growth you know internal growth that we can have as individuals does that does that make any sense yeah it makes perfect sense and when you say like people are going to criticize you for limiting the power of god like, I don't think you could limit the supernatural God magic any more than it is already limited in this dispensation. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. Right? Yeah. Like, there's nothing you can say that could make it happen less because it's already not visibly happening. And, yeah. and the other thing I would add, just a caveat to what you say, I like the idea of kind of holding that middle ground, saying like, look, no matter what side you take, there's value below the literal. In fact, I would argue, Jack, and I think you agree, the most value like the the least valuable way to look at scripture and to wrestle with it is on a literal level. Like yeah. once you shed that, like that's where the deep discussions start to happen. But I at least want to throw in the caveat that if one falls on the ground that look, all of those stories of the past, they're most likely almost entirely myth embellished stories meant to be figurative, maybe started with some piece of truth. Like there was a guy named Isaiah, but this isn't exactly how his life went. Once we acknowledge that the the next natural step, and again, for those who take that conclusion, because I just want to validate them. The next natural step is to look at Mormonism and to frame, you know, Peter, James, and John, or the first vision or, uh, Moroni showing up and showing Joseph where there's a hole in the ground. Like that can easily then the next step be that that's just more of the same. Like we've given ourselves in this dispensation, mythical stories, figurative stories, allegories, um, embellished stories that had just a hint of truth to them. And, and once we make that space, like, oh my goodness, now everything is unstable. And I would want to say like, let's hold on a moment. That may be true. But this is, there's something still here worth wrestling with. And whatever life we live, we surround ourselves with stories, regardless of whether it's in Mormonism or some other walk, that just because they're stories and not necessarily historical doesn't necessitate that we walk away. I, I, I mean, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. And I think you stated it spot on, which is, which is, you know, the, the stories and and the myths and symbolism and figurative figurative takeaways those all are used as as kind of negative pejorative terms in our community like like that's a like that's a danger those are um and and we fail to it, in the process of doing that we fail to recognize the great value of any of this which is which is a way to organize our thoughts and to to kind of categorize our current understanding. And when our current understanding is different tomorrow and next week and next month, we can continue to, to reshuffle and reorganize. And I, I think we miss that 
that really organizing point uh, of stories and myths in general. But we certainly do uh, as we get closer and closer and closer to, you know, w- what are stories about the restoration and stories about, you know, what, whatever we, whatever we're teaching and believing, you know, I mean, it, it it's kind of a more fundamental question. Um, the, the other thing too, I think that, it, and I want to get this out before I forget it, cause I'm about to forget it, which is, you know, we, we don't, we don't see, um, well, maybe, I mean, at least to your eyes and to my eyes, we don't see Red Seas being parted and, you know, these dramatic, this dramatic God magic, but, but what, what we unequivocally can see and notice is what really feels like God magic in our own lives. And if I tell you stories of, you know, my God magic experiences, they're just going to sound like coincidence. They're so subtle and they're so personal. It won't really, it won't really, uh, it's not something I can really tell you. Um, I mean, I can tell you and you can say, Oh yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hmm, hmm, yeah, that could be, but, but it'll sound a lot more like coincidences. But I think all of us have these experiences with what they call outside of the church synchronicities or, um, again, or precognition, we have what are personally very miraculous things. And, and I think it's a shame when we get so hung up on something in some story, not literally being true. It's a shame when, because of that, we, we don't notice or we ignore the personal miracles in our own lives. Cause that's, those are so beautiful and you can really, you really can close your eyes in a sense and hold to the rod and kind of get somewhere almost by magic. I think if you, if you're looking and you're seeing, you know, spiritual miracles in your own lives, which upon examination by some third party may just seem like a bunch of coincidences, but, but you sort of know over time. Um, but, but I'm with you right there that, you know, it's, it's a ground gets unstable when we start talking about these things, but the deeper truths are found only when you look past literalism. You, you, and, 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 you know, again, without taking a, a strong position, you know, for me, the great story, the great takeaway of the first vision is, hey, you can, you can pray and get an answer. You, you, you know, church member can pray and get an answer. Wow. That's, that's a good takeaway. That's, to me, that's more important than whether or not anyone even came to Joseph Smith. It's that, oh, I, I can, I can pray and get an answer. And then when you get an answer, then it doesn't matter if Joseph Smith got an answer because you got your own answer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Um, the next thing I want to touch on is, is I think Mormonism. I don't. I don't even think even progressive Mormons or ex-Mormon. I don't think th- those two groups even uh, grasp just how much Mormonism has changed in the last decade. And, and I want to try to frame it, and I want to get maybe your thoughts with kind of the the big question, which is maybe more of what we just hit on. Mm-hmm. Um, the uniqueness that Mormonism had back in the 80s and 90s that Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith and Ezra Taft Benson and those kinds of rigid, strong voices had given us where we had answers to every question. We knew what God thought about the circus. We knew what God thought about playing cards, cremation, <laughs> birth yeah. control, right? Like you name it and yeah. we knew what God thought about that issue. Yeah. That, that, that framework is gone. Like yep. McConkie and Fielding Smith's Mormonism of age of the earth and dinosaurs and evolution, gone. Yep. So 
that uniqueness that made Mormonism very different from anything else in the world, that is either disappeared completely or there's very little left of it. Mm. And, and I don't think most people gather that. The, the other thing is me and uh, my, my good friend Chris, we did an episode recently where we went through a lot of the faith-promoting stories, the sweet, uh, uh, Sweetwater River Crossing, the seagulls and crickets, the uh, mm. Lorenzo Snow seeing Jesus in the temple. And what we discovered is that essentially all of these stories are – once you lay the sources out and you look at the data – they're deeply problematic or they're demonstrably false. Uh, Thomas Marsh leaving over milk and stripping. Simon's writer leaving because his name was spelled wrong. All the stories we've told ourselves to give ourselves an identity as Mormons. Those stories, at, at the very least, we have to acknowledge the majority of them are problematic. And to be honest, a large chunk of them are demonstrably false or deeply inaccurate. So the, the, the miracle stories we've told ourselves, those also, over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they're going to be gone. And and then um, when we talk about our truth claims, right, which we're hitting on a little bit, first vision, priesthood restoration, translation of the Book of Abraham, uh, the Book of Mormon, whether it's historical or not, um, how Joseph even gets the plates and is he a good kid, is he not a good kid, is he a scam artist, like all of these things – yeah. Have suddenly gotten really messy. And every one of our truth claims is, is risky to even talk about because the sources raise deep questions that make them very problematic. And it, and at least in some of them, demonstrably inaccurate as far as how we've told our narrative. So when you get rid of the uniqueness that McConkie and Fielding Smith gave, when you get rid of the miracle stories because they don't hold up to the data, and when you realize that every one of our truth claims are problematic, inaccurate, and maybe even demonstrably inaccurate, like, you know, very significantly inaccurate, like, what are we left with? Because we've made this claim that Mormonism is the one true and living church. It has priesthood power. God came to Joseph. Uh, Peter, James, and John gave them, gave them this power, keys and authority. Elijah and Moses show up in the temple. And, and, and now every one of the, the listeners listening to this, they're wrestling with this messiness. They're trying to figure out like, what am I left with if Mormonism makes these grand claims? And now all I'm to do is to look at the symbolic or allegorical meaning underneath all of it. Mm. Good luck with that, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I I agree. I agree with almost everything you've said. I mean, it's a, it's a different, I, I don't think people are aware of how different things are and how much change there actually is inside the LDS church. Um, and you could take, I think you could take just about, well, maybe not every issue, but you could take a lot of issues and, and we've shifted dramatically in the last, like you said, in the last 10 years even, forget about over a hundred years or 150 years. And there, there are a few things that we, um, still cling to quite rigidly that are, that are pretty sacrosanct still. Um, you know, like, um, Although, you know, even some, I was going to say like the historicity of the Book of Mormon, but you know, like, you know, 20 years ago, it was even 10 years ago, it was unthinkable to, to make, to make any sort of statement about the historicity of the Book of Mormon and, and not be considered 
a, a total heretic who should be excommunicated. I mean, it was just, you, you know, and now the environment is such that even, you know, Elder Holland says there are people who believe that way and they have a place in our church. And I don't, you know, he said, I don't personally believe that way, but, but they're welcomed. And, you know, and, that, and all of our best scholars are speaking to it, right? You know, Bushman, all, Mason, right. uh, all the Sam best people Brown. Uh, right. And, and, you know, like, as you mentioned, 10 years ago, I mean, could you, as, would Ezra Taft Benson ever say that? I mean, no way. He would call for your excommunication. I, I surmise. Right. I don't know, but, but that, you know, so that's how right. different the environment is. But there's some things that, you know, and we've recognized in our own essays that there are a bunch of different accounts of the first vision. We've recognized with our own essays that, you know, our, our priesthood ban on the blacks was, was wrong, uh, was not inspired, you know, so, so we do, we have changed dramatically. And, and this question about, well, what is left given that, that some of these core beliefs or core reasons why people participated in Mormonism, once they get rattled a little bit or once they get transformed, what is, what is left um, and I, you know, I, that's an interesting question. I'm not as disturbed about that question as I, I think as some people are, because I think even though people will get up on Sunday and, and say testimonies that are based on someone being a prophet or certain books being true or this or that, I think deep down that people, in spite of what they say, come to church for entirely different reasons. And I think some of those reasons are things like, um, you know, if I lose my job, I think people are going to come and help me here. If I, you know, on a more superficial level, if I need to move, they're going to come and help me. Likewise, I don't want my kids to be totally selfish. And if I bring them here, they're going to be asked to serve and to help other people. And they're going to be taught, you know, a a what I think is basically a healthy moral code. I think we go too far with, we go too extreme with some things, but I think overall the moral code that we teach is, is healthy and protective. And I think overall word of wisdom, I mean, I've, I've often said that we ought to allow beer drinking at the word Christmas party, having said all that <laughs> as a joke, but I sort of believe it too, because it would lubricate things. But, but having said all that, I think the word of wisdom is healthy and protective. And I think, Overall, most of, we're teaching more healthy, productive things. There's more a sense of community and inclusion than there isn't. Now there clearly are groups that are, are marginalized, maybe even oppressed, maybe scapegoated. I, I, I recognize all of that, but I, but I only mention any of this because it goes to this fundamental question of why are people even coming? And I don't think people are coming on Sunday because they, they know that, um, everything Joseph Smith uttered was noble and prophetic. I just don't, I mean, even if they say it behind, you know, behind the mic on Sundays in their testimony, I think the, the emotion that they're feeling belies the, the utterance of that statement. I just think that they're feeling and they're there for much deeper reasons than maybe they Maybe they, maybe we all don't even realize. And I think it has more to do with community, with love, with real spiritual experiences that we've discussed, real promptings, real inspiration, you know, real miracles, personal miracles. And it, and it, it, so it's more those things, I think. And so I think, you know, the, the, the rational mind, the collective rational mind will think up new, new ways to, 
to quiet itself so that we'll all just keep going to church because we like, we like the community. That may be a cop out as an answer, but, but I think, but I do think that that's, I think more of that's going on than we think. Yeah. And I agree with you. Community, Mormonism does community as well as any religious faith, I think. And yeah. maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, even when I look at other high demand fundamentalist religions, with maybe the exception of like the Amish, I think Mormonism does community as well as anyone. And, and I, and I always argue this point, like I'm, I'm frustrated with the unhealthiness of Mormonism. I'm frustrated with the lack of vulnerability with Mormonism. And, but at the same time, I would say two things. One is that when I was in that first half of life, Mormonism worked as perfectly for me and my family as anything could. And it was such a protection and support to me in that first half of life. It gave me everything. It nourished me. It, Mm. it, it raised me and I can't, I can't be critical in the second half of life without acknowledging in that first half of life, it was absolutely no if, ands, or buts perfect for me. The, the other thing is to recognize now, now that I'm in the second half of life, it is that tension. It is that frustration. It is that wrestling constantly with here's where I stand and here's where Mormonism stands that has been a catalyst, uh, for my growth. For, mm. for where I've come to. And if I had been a Methodist or a Baptist, I would still be in the first half of life. And so I, I'm thankful to Mormonism because it's, it is the reason. Hmm. I cannot, I mean, I mean, some people will say, Bill, how do you know? How do you know, like, if you'd lived some other life that you wouldn't be where you are now in terms of how you process information? And I just know, my gut just tells me that it's Mormonism that was the catalyst for that. And, and so I want to recognize, like, some people say, like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. I'm out. And I'm going to say, this isn't what you thought it was, which is the reason why you stay, is to yeah. wrestle with that. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a, I think that's a really important point to, to emphasize. And it, it, I mean, it's, it's beautifully said, um, is that we, we gripe that it's not a second half of life church, but in a sense, that sort of is the point of the second half of life, right? You're supposed to struggle right. with, with all these things and, and you don't if you don't have a really strong container that was sort of foisted on you to begin with. And people see that as a great negative, as you stated, but it, but it's not. And, you know, as I was listening to you, I, I, it brought into my own mind just questions about, you know, more fundamental questions about truth and what does it even mean to be true? And if it's taking you to a place of growth and deeper personal understanding and enlightenment, there's something very true about it that has nothing to do with facts. And that, that's sort of a weird, um, non-dualistic, non-Western way of, of articulating something. And, 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 and it's contradictory, but I think that's also, you know, part of the paradox of it all. Right. Anyways, I interrupted you. Mm. Sorry about that. What were you, what were you going to say? You had a point. No, no, no. That was. No, no, that was perfect. And it's interesting you say that. Like anytime you speak to or talk about a second half of life kind of idea, anybody in the first half of life is going to go, that's just crazy talk. Or they'll go, you know, there's something to it, but I can't, can't quite wrap my head around it. And so the listeners yeah. will, 
the listeners will sympathize and empathize with what you just said. And, and the few kind of orthodox first half of lifers who are tuned in are going to go, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> and, and that's just yeah, the <laughs> nature of, of those two halves of life. So I want to jump into this last question. We've been going here now about an hour and a half. Um, once all we have left, and, and this is kind of maybe uh, uh, an over um, another another way of saying the last question again. Another way, another way to reiterate it. But once once all that's left in terms of orthodox Mormonism, when you wrestle with this, is that everything about these priesthood power claims again they're intangible they're invisible they're unverifiable a lot of people are going to feel like all they're left with then is just an empty shell that's not what it claims to be and and once mm. and once we recognize that mormonism is ultra concerned to boundary maintenance and protecting its narrative like those two things once you come to grips with those two things it, it seems like the next recognition, at least for me personally, was that, and I said this earlier, there's not a whole lot of wisdom inside my tribe that's nourishing and feeding me. Like, yes, the wrestle with that is a catalyst for growth. But in terms of showing up for three hours every Sunday and going, this, this is going to nourish my soul and, and promote growth in this like positive, fun, enjoyable way, like that kind of goes away again for me. I'm just curious, like, could you make an argument like kind of as our final conclusion? It's again, it's a reemphasis of the last question. It's just giving you another chance to kind of reframe it. But is like, give that person, cause there are people listening right now who are going like, I'm on the fence, man. I'm ready to call it quits. I'm ready to walk away from this thing because I'm just frustrated and butting my head against the wall every single Sunday and sometimes three or four times during the week. Why do I stay and maybe make the argument for why somebody should stay in Mormonism in spite of the dominant narrative not being true? Well, that's a, that's a big question, Bill. <laughs> uh, I, I guess, you know, my knee jerk reaction is that um, at some point in life, uh, one stops being the, consumer of something the the learner or the 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 follower if you will and one becomes the teacher the leader the the giver the parent and if you're if you're in this stage of life you don't go to church to be fed anymore you you don't go to learn um well you, you don't go to learn from the book, from the, from the, from the manual or from, the, you know, you don't go to learn the, the doctrines, you know, the ideas because you know, because you know them all and you've no, and you've, you, you go for different reasons. You go to, to feed, you go to empathize with other people, you go to help, you go to add a little nuance if, but, but you also go to recognize too and to reflect I think about this earlier stage of life. You know, you mentioned, you know, about how first half of life bill really was guided and raised by Mormonism. Well, that, yes, that's really beautiful. Well, there are other people who are having an analogous experience and you can see, you can see them thinking the way you did. And it's good to reflect on how that that's a positive, not a negative thing or 
it's good to be there so that you can say <clears throat> to another first half of life person, you know, why don't we emphasize a couple other things because, you know, you're, you're overemphasizing something a little bit too much and you can, you can guide and help without taking away their experience, you know, and so I, you know, and it, so when I say, you know, I backed off a little bit, we don't go to learn. I think when we look at church that way, that we do the learning that we're supposed to be having at a, during a second half of life, you know, you, you're not going to you don't need to learn the formulas and the black and white letter of the law and the doctrines. You know all that stuff. You know it in spades and you know all of its weaknesses. And so you're no, and there's no one at church who knows more than you, uh, or, 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 or me. I mean, there are, but you know what I mean? There's no one, there's no one there who's going to teach you anything anymore. And, and it's right. so, you, right. so you go because you can, you go to do for other reasons. And, you know, one of those reasons is, you know, to serve or to help it, but there are lots of reasons to go. I think, you know, I find I'm very reflective about, and I think it's kind of funny to see how primary kids learn these basics and how some are little Nazis and some are not. And and you can sort of project their paths moving forward and what they're going to struggle with in life. And, you know, but the, but those are the experiences that they're here to have. I think that's a beautiful thing to, to watch. Whereas if you go with the attitude that this is all garbage and a bunch of crap, then you're going to think it, it's a very negative thing. And I, you know, so I think, and, and I think it is a positive thing. I don't think I'm just deluding myself. I think it is in fact a, a very positive thing to witness that those type of things for the, for the younger generation. So we go for different reasons than to be, than to be fed and to be nurtured. You know, and, and sure, and we go to think about why we were even put on this path. You know, I often think, well, why was I, why was I even born into the Mormon church? You know, it's not like I chose it. It really, I didn't choose it. I mean, I guess incrementally I did because I didn't really ever leave, but, but at the same time, I didn't really choose it. So why did God put me on this path? And, and I have some theories about that as I reflect, you know, it, it saved me from some certain dangers that, that I, that could have really destroyed me. Um, and, and who knows all the reasons, but, but I think when we think about, you know, when we think about what is the church doing for us as second half of life people, we're, we're the, you know, second half of life people are the elder statesmen in the church and there's no one there who, who can teach us anything anymore. And, and I think if we, I mean, I don't know if I don't want to make a broad statement, but for me personally, it makes it more interesting and it's kind of liberating too, because also all that said at church, I, I know that there's no one there that's going to really teach me much. And so people can say whatever they want. It doesn't really affect me. You know, it's just kind of them working through what they're working through. Um, it's a different, different way of looking at it for sure though, than I used to. Hmm. Hmm. That beautiful. And the only things I would add to that, and it, it's just, again, reiterating what you've said, Thomas Worthland McConkie, a good friend of mine. I, I just adore the man and think he's just such a wise soul. Um, he talks often about, parent-child relationships. And in the first half of life, the church is the parent and we're the child. And and he emphasizes that when we get to the second half of life, and he he calls it, you know, different things. He uses stages yeah. and and uh some of that kind of Ken Wilber type of talk with development. But he he emphasizes that when we get to the second half of life, it's now our responsibility to fill the role of the parent and the church becomes the child. And 
that's that can be frustrating, right? As a parent, sometimes it's frustrating it when we see our kid not behaving or acting or or learning or growing or reaching or stretching the way we we want them to or or trying things or or being open to things and and yet that's our role now our role is the parent and as a parent you can't just walk away from your child again i want to validate for anybody who does leave because mormonism is harmful to them god bless you uh don't let the door hit you in the rear end like please go away and and i don't mean that negatively um that came off maybe harsh. I don't mean it like shame on you. I mean like God bless you. You have my blessing. Don't feel bad because you didn't stay. If Mormonism hurts you, like you have my blessing and you have every other person in the second half of life. You have our blessing. Walk away and and don't look back and go do great things and go achieve yeah. great things. Um, but at the same time, like if you can stay in this tension – if this tension is a catalyst for growth, if you're learning, like, yes, you're going to be frustrated. Yes, Mormonism is going to disappoint you. Yes, Mormonism on Sunday for three hours is rarely going to give you something where you're like, oh, man, yeah. that was awesome. That's rarely going to happen. But but that's the role now in the second half of life as a parent. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree totally. And I, I think that's what was happening to Mike Norton, by the way. I think it was this, look, it's hurting you. Go Go somewhere else. It's just fine. And, and I think that that is fine for people because there are people who are totally triggered by, by bad experiences that they've had in the church, be it abused by some bishop or some zealot or criticism or they're gay or they're divorced or they're the wrong color. You know, it's not a perfect place. And sometimes you, you know, like a family, if your family is psychotic, sometimes you just got to leave and go away. And that's okay. I think that that's okay. We're, and we're afraid, other than Dieter, very tangentially, to say sometimes your path takes you away from something that's call, causing you up, upset. You know, and I think that I, I couldn't agree with you more that 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 that's that that's fine. You know, having said all that, I think a lot of people are babies, and they're and they're whiners, and they say, "Oh, this didn't turn out to be true." And I guess what I would say is. Okay, go tell me what other tradition does it better <laughs> that you're going to be happier with. You may find one, you may not, you know, but somebody like Heidegger, you know, there's a lot of philosophers who say you really can't leave your culture. No matter at a, at a higher level, you, you just, you can respond to it, but you can't, you can't leave it and live an authentic life. That's an interesting proposition, yeah. by the way, mm. that would be worth having a whole nother podcast about. I welcome it. Um, yes. And I have to revisit this because I, as I catch myself saying it, I tried to explain it. When I say like, don't hit, let the door hit you in the butt, like that, we use that in our culture as a negative. And what I'm saying is, if it hurts you, get out so fast, walk away. Even if it's just yeah. a sabbatical to give yourself some space to process this, get out so fast right. that the door doesn't hit you. Yep. Like, like please, if it's yep. harmful. The other thing is, like, like Thomas Worthlin McConkie did. Right. Right. Like, right. He, he. Yeah. 13 years old, he disconnects. 18 years old, he throws a backpack on and goes across the, the world to get as far away from Mormonism as he can. Um, yeah. You also mentioned, like, we become the teacher. And, and I think mentors are so important, especially in high-demand fundamentalist religions. Having somebody who's in the second half of life who can say, like, don't take the literalness so seriously. And, and the other thing I think of is, 
everybody in the second half of life that I've ever talked to, I'm sure there is an exception to this, but when I say, would you go back? Like if you could go back to where it fits so beautifully and it brought so much comfort and peace into your life, would you? The unanimous answer is no. Like I wouldn't trade what I have now for what that was, as beautiful as what that was, like how that existed. And I would just recognize that as a mentor, as the teacher, as somebody in a word, and again, I don't think like, oh, I'm going to wake everybody up to the second half of life. No, but I'm one thing among a thousand things that's encouraging them to wake up to the second half of life. Mm. And every institution needs mentors in the second half of life to help people begin to grasp the deeper, more expansive ideas within just human experience that seems so prevalent within religion. I, I just think somebody needs to be there to say like, oh yeah, there's a tension and here's what's going on and here's some other ways to think of it and here's how I do it. Um, and, and I don't, I don't want to reduce that. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. We are, I couldn't agree. We are sorely, we are sorely missing that in our institution for sure. I mean, we just don't have, and we don't have, um, not, not only are we missing it, you know, institutionally, but when anyone t- tries to do that, they're, they're marginalized as heretics or as unworthy or as, as, um, you know, it'd be nice if, if some of our, our, you know, our clergy member, our, our leaders were more like this. But again, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know why we're, and maybe I have delusions about other traditions, but I think that like Catholicism and, and Judaism, they've figured this out better. They have, there's a place of standing and respect for, for the unorthodox thinker. They, they have a, they have official roles, uh, inside the community. I, I, maybe I'm deluded about that, but I know that in our community, we do not have any of that. Uh, we, we haven't, we don't have anything to support that at all. Right. That. So I'm, I'm sorry. No, 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 you're fine. In the second half of life, we tend to kind of be the prophets in some ways preaching from the wilderness. And as Jesus taught, right? Like, like anybody who does that is without honor in their own home, right? In their own land, in their own, in their own yeah, tribe. Think, yeah. And, and we're, I, I think we're supposed to struggle with, you know, we're supposed to, you know, read all there is to read. And I mean, I think one of the things that we've learned is, in the first half is how to educate yourself and how to learn on your own. And so you need to do more of that on your own. People need to, you know, continue to cultivate and study and learn and grow spiritually, but often we're not going to find it inside. You know, we're going to be the ones providing it, but we're not going to really find sustenance there. Right, right. We begin to look outside of our tribe and other places to do what Joseph Smith said, which is to go wrap our arms around truth elsewhere while still being in the I tribe. That's right. Um, I, I just want to say like, thank you. Like the, to me, this has been so much fun to have this conversation. Oh, thank you, Bill. Thanks for, thanks for running it. I mean, you really ran it and had all the great questions. So I really appreciate no, it. No, no problem. This was beautiful. And, and I think everybody listening, orthodox, unorthodox, in, out, like this is one of these conversations I think anybody could kind of share and it be a good foundation for once the, once the conversation that we had is over for other conversations to ensue. And, and so I just want to say thank you for, for the contribution of the two of us kind of having this talk and it, it being for me really deep and expansive. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Well, that was my conversation with Bill Reel, who was gracious enough to come on and drive the conversation. I hope you didn't feel like we went on too long. Send me your emails, your questions to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.